Good morning. We continue in our series out of the book of Acts, Becoming the Church Stories of the First Jesus People. It probably goes without saying that uh, what we're reading about in the book of Acts began in the Old Testament. God made a people for himself, Israel. And it is uh, out of Israel and the Jewish race that Jesus was born and the first Jesus people came. But when we get to chapter 10, something remarkable takes place. God takes the initiative. It was part of his plan all along, but God takes the initiative. I mean, he's got to... um, You know, he's got to stoke the fire. He's got to prime the pump. And even though the people understand these things in theory, and by in theory I mean in theology, (laughs) what God has taught, what God's plan is as he's revealed, uh, here we see in chapter 10 and 11, he's got to kind of get the ball rolling. And he's got to get his people on board because uh, he doesn't want just... Uh, a people of a given race and nation, and that was never his intent, but he wants potentially the whole world because uh, he's the creator. He made the world and all that is in it, and it all belongs to him, and uh, he wants the world to know it, and he wants the world to know his blessing and identification with him. So here we are in chapter 10, and Cornelius a Roman centurion stationed in Caesarea, a guy who prays all the time. He fears God. He seeks God. And uh, I have the hunch that he's drawn to the Jewish people that he's stationed around uh, in his service to the emperor and imperial Rome, but he serves a God who is greater. He is a Gentile. And God takes an occasion when he's in prayer to give him a vision and to get this whole thing going. So I'd like to read chapter 10, not all of it. We started in chapter 11 last week because in chapter 11, uh, some of the things that evolved, what came out of chapter 10 creates some criticism for Peter. Peter gives his response and recounts chapter 10. But now today I want us to look at chapter 10 with the perspective we have from last week out of chapter 11 as we look at some of the things that really characterize uh, God's, what God is doing and how God's people respond to his will and follow him. Start with me as, uh, as I read out of chapter 10 at verse 1. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment or cohort. He and his, all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers 
and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They cried out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate or discriminate about going with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we've come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up. He said, I'm only a man myself. Talking with him, 
Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. I shared last Sunday, I hope you were here, but if you weren't, I want to bring you up to speed. I shared last Sunday about a dinner I had at a swanky restaurant in Jerusalem, and after dinner, I asked if I could have some coffee. And I started an international incident. And I mean, it's natural to wonder. I mean, what, what's, what's, <laughs> well, I broke a food taboo. I broke, I broke the, the law of kosher. And uh, I didn't realize it. You see, in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 14, verse 21, this is what we read. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, you, you might be baffled by that, but that does explain everything. <laughs> Except for a bunch of Gentiles like us. But you see, the rabbis wanted to build a hedge about the law so that we wouldn't inadvertently violate something that God had commanded. And you see, at dinner, we had enjoyed a, a, a number of delicious meats. But the rabbis said that you should never mix meat or dairy. In other words, meat and mother's milk. And they've extended it to, to just the furthest reaches of, uh, of our appreciation. And so uh, that was why it was very awkward for me to ask in that setting, may I have some coffee? Because they always serve cream with coffee. And there would be the problem. Well, this last week I was reminded that John Witte uh, John Whitty is the son-in-law. Um, Lori Whitty, his wife is, is Stephen and uh, uh, Susie Witten's uh, daughter. And many of you know the Wittens. They've been in Jerusalem and in uh, Israel studying. And I was reminded of a picture on John Whitty's Facebook page. And I thought I would share it with you. It's a picture of a kosher McDonald's in Jerusalem. And you can see the burgers there and everything. But John has a little footnote to this picture on his Facebook page, which I thought I would share with you. Just don't try and order that quarter pounder with cheese. <laughs> because you would be violating, you see, the spirit of Deuteronomy 14.21. Well, to us, this sounds like a lot of fuss and rather silly at that. I want us to understand, though, that for a Jew, observance of purity and dietary regulations was a vital matter 
of identity. Identity that involved them being set apart and recognized as God's people. God's rules, you see, for distinguishing his people from the rest of the world had to do with being holy. When we think of holy, we think of, we think of moral perfection. We think of the absence of any kind of wrongdoing or sin. But the ancient notion of holiness, even in the Old Testament with respect to God and his people, had to do with being set apart and exclusive to God. That is what all of these regulations involve, you see. Setting apart a people that are exclusively his and identified as his people. Now, we might think, well, what is God trying to haze these people by silly little laws, you know, don't mix meat and dairy? Uh, no, he's not trying to haze them. A lot of... A lot of these laws and regulations had to do with health and hygiene as well as religious and spiritual fidelity, the symbolic rejection, as well as the practical avoidance of idolatry to make God exclusively their God to live that out realistically. But at the same time, it had to do with keeping them a people that were healthy and blessed and exclusively His. Well, a lot of those laws get lost on us today, and we think it's just uh, about hazing somebody if they're going to join the fraternity. But it's a lot more than that. But what we see in Acts 10 God is initiating an invitation that is going to trump those regulations and those laws in order to reach people because Jesus Christ has changed everything. And I want to emphasize three things before we look more closely at chapter 10 and we kind of review what I covered last week, but I want us to see three things that really emerge out of chapter 10 that help us to see what is new. And that is, is that Jesus has become the decisive criterion of holiness and identification. First of all, God calls Peter to violate well, actually, God says there is no longer any violation of purity laws and dietary regulations because everything is pure and clean. Okay? He says that's not going to be an issue any longer. And, of course, a part of Peter coming to realize what God is teaching him through this uh, through this vision is that these laws have not just to do with eating, they have to do with relationships between people, particularly Gentiles. But I want you to understand that first of all, Peter is called to violate holiness regulations. Second, Peter tells Cornelius about Jesus, not about dietary laws and purity regulations. And third, the Holy Spirit 
comes upon Gentiles just like the Jews. That's what we see in chapter 10. And if you're not getting it, how does that happen? For example, why is it that Peter doesn't show up at Cornelius' house? He sees this crowd. He's a little taken aback. He thought this was going to be a private audience. But now, <laughs> you know, Cornelius has everybody there. And uh, what does Peter say? He says, you know, I've got I to be up front with you. You know as well as I do. I wouldn't normally be here. I wouldn't even step over the threshold into your presence because it would be a violation. But he says, God has shown me. Did you pick that up? God has shown me. See, he doesn't start preaching about what they have to do to be acceptable to God. I think we can really relate to that. Because uh, if you've been at church, or you've been around the church for a while, we, we, get, to, we get to collecting our own regulations and rules that people have to subscribe to and adhere to. We become sometimes a little bit Jewish or a little bit Pharisaic and we impose upon people uh, things that they have to do in order to be full-fledged, bona fide members of the church or accepted in our eyes. I'll never forget when I was in South San Francisco and I was pastoring there, we had a number of people that uh, God brought into our experience as a church. Um, we had alcoholics, we had a number of drug addicts uh, from cocaine to heroin, and uh, they, God got a hold of them and started changing their lives. But, you know, not everything changes at once. And I'm not the one who gives them a long list of changes to make. I let God do that. And so, here's what would happen after church. Uh, they, would, they would step outside, and they would pull out a pack of cigarettes and light up their cigarette and start smoking right there on the church grounds. And boy, did I hear it for that. But, you know, I understand. But what I try to explain to people is that, you know, when it's taken God to make all these wonderful changes in our lives, why is it we expect God to make those changes in the lives of other people all at once, all of a sudden, if they're going to be full-fledged and fully accepted by the grace of God? I'll tell you why. Because we impose our own special laws and regulations upon others. And we say, if you meet these laws and regulations, then you're acceptable to us. You're a full-fledged member. And we do that at church, too. You know, uh, it's not as bad these days, but I can remember where, you know, if you showed up looking the way most of you look today, But you know, that's what won me to Christ, going to church, becoming formal, you know, doing the formal thing after I became a Christian. I had the beard, the, the long hair, the earring, the holes in the knees of my jeans, moccasins, a, a t-shirt, and a dear lady, I don't know if she was really that old, but she seemed old to me at the time, and she just loved on me. She came right up to me and welcomed me. 
But I remember when I was in my own home, mom would, you know, I know where she was coming from, but she'd say, you're going to church looking like that? We impose too many restrictions and regulations. And what we see here in chapter 10 is that God is saying to Peter, Peter, Jesus is the one criterion by which I gauge holiness. If you belong to Jesus, you belong to me. If you belong to Jesus, you are my child. That's why Paul talks about adoption. If you belong to Jesus, you are my special people. That's why Peter applies to the church the, the, the same verbiage and language that was used of creating a special and particular people for himself. It's all through Jesus, you see. That's the one criterion. Because now that he has been raised and his spirit has been poured out, they realize too that in his death he satisfied all the issues of moral purity and perfection. He was the righteous one. And so we are acceptable to God on every level because of him. We are brothers because of him. We belong to one another because of him. And if you can get that, you have seen here in chapter 10 the essence of what is the gospel and our theology. And yet we come along and we want to we add stuff. It's Jesus plus this. And unless you have this plus, you're not a full-fledged believer. You're not fully acceptable to God and you're not my brother. That's what all the cults do. It's Jesus and Jesus plus, Jesus also. It's not just Jesus. And what God is showing us here in chapter 10, just as he showed Peter, Peter, to be one of my people, it's not defined by regulations and purity laws. It's defined by my son, Jesus. And that's what Peter preached. That's what he's preached. If we were to look at his sermon in chapter 10, it was all about who Jesus is. Lord of all, no respecter of persons. Read it for yourself. And then the Holy Spirit, while he was in the middle of that sermon, the, the Spirit was poured out. Just as I look at you, I can't tell what you're thinking. I don't even know for sure if you're here. You look like you're here, but I really don't know. And here Peter was talking to Cornelius and his family and his associates. He didn't know what was going on inside, and all of a sudden the Spirit just came upon him because while he was talking, they were walking right into relationship with God through what he was saying about Jesus Christ because they were taking it to heart. They believed it. And the Spirit came upon them and validated it and ratified it and verified it, and it blew Peter away. And we saw last week that what Peter went on in chapter 11 to show us when uh, he returned to Jerusalem, people, God's people really care about his will. They want to do it. And they had to catch up with what God was doing in chapter 10. So when he got back to Jerusalem, Peter had some explaining to do because they really did care. In fact, they criticized him in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 11. But as we saw, they were unified by the time Peter got finished with what he had to say in verses 4 through 17. And in verse 18, we see that they quieted down. It actually says that, that quiet came over them, or they fell silent. 
and praise took the place of criticism and they all together began to glorify the Lord. That's what happens when we put our eyes on the Lord. And then what Peter had to share with them basically was a defense against the criticism, but it was a simple defense. It was, it was just this. It was just, you know, if, if, if I've done something wrong, if, if I'm in trouble with you, it's just, it's basically because I was doing what God was telling me to do. <laughs> And you know, that should, we've all got to get to that place. We've all got to get to that place. We don't want to leave anybody behind. I thought Peter was incredibly sensitive in telling them about what God was doing so that they could come along with him and catch up. And he understood what was dividing them, a misunderstanding in the fact that they were kind of behind and had to be a part of what God was doing. So he told them all about it. But the beauty of the thing is that if he hadn't stood up for him at that point, just like there are times in our Christian life, defining moments when we have to stand up for him. Like that old song that I used to sing when I was growing up, though no one join me, still I will follow. We all have to get to that place in our lives. Though no one join me, still I will follow. And that's what we saw with Peter, how to follow God. But this morning, and very quickly, I want to take us back through some of these key points of how God's will was discovered. And we already saw in reading chapter 10 that it was initiated with the vision that God showed to Cornelius. And one first thing that we learn about Cornelius, a Gentile, (laughs) is that he made a habit of God. You know, I, I use the word devotion. That's a good word. We could talk about routine, but I also like the word habit. Is God a habit for you? The beauty of habits is is they almost become secondhand. That's the way God should be in our lives. And sometimes those habits really get rooted in our lives by the routines of our lives. Cornelius was a man who obviously made choices for God. He made choices. And those choices became a part of his, if you will, lifestyle or routine. God was a habit for him. And when the angel showed up and revealed some things to him, it basically is the revelation of a reputation of God in his life giving to the needy and the poor, praying all the time. He regularly prayed. I think it's beautiful that when Peter catches up with the guys who came to summon him on Cornelius' behalf and take him back to Caesarea, Cornelius is walking with them, and they start talking to Peter about Cornelius. In verse 22, look at the description of this man that they use. It's a beautiful thing. They know about him. People around him know what he's about, even though he is a centurion. He is a hot shot in the greatest army on earth, serving the most powerful man, the emperor of Rome, on earth. And yet these people know that God matters to him. It's a part of his life. It's the substance of his life. And I think that's so powerful for us. 
In fact, uh, I was reminded on this vacation, you know, I got to go with uh, Shelly 16 days with my wife. I don't even get one day in a normal week with her. But I got 16. That was wonderful. And we were in Hawaii. And I probably could have stayed a little longer. <laughs> I, I could have forced myself. It would have been tough. But you know what I found? And especially when I got back, it just is, I belong here. There was something that it seems like as the days mounted, I could feel that something wasn't quite right. Something was missing in my life. You and the Lord and you are a part of my habit. I hope that you have a habit of life that it, where God is just so naturally part of who you are. And there are other people that are a part of that habit as well that encourage and strengthen you, that you have a role in their lives and they have a role in yours. And a vacation is great and it is refreshing and rejuvenating, but you realize something's missing. I just finished, in fact, on vacation, a book that was given me by a friend before I left to read. It was one of seven books I completed. Charles Duhigg, you, I can remember his name because I always think of Duhickey. Charles Duhigg, The Power of Habit. The Power of Habit. And at the end of the book, he tells a story about two fish. You can get a picture of this now. Two fish swimming along. And they meet an older fish. You know, a wiser fish. An older fish. And the older fish says to the two younger fish who nods, you know, they exchange nods, and he says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two fish swim on, and eventually one looks at the other and goes, and I have to edit this, it, what the, is water? And Duhigg says, water is the habits, the unthinking choices and invisible decisions that surround us daily, and which, just by looking at them, makes them visible again. We need habits in our lives where God is very much part and parcel of our lives. The point, make God a habit. A second thing, the pattern and practice of prayer is a part of that habit. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. In chapter 10 it says, for example, at the at the at about three o'clock. Well, that's the in Greek it says the ninth hour. Well, that's an hour of prayer among the Jews. Or when Peter went up on the roof, the, it was noon. Well, that's a tw that's the twelfth hour. That's the hour of of prayer, as well as food. And so, these men have a routine of talking with God. Cornelius talks to him all the time, and and. You know, some people feel like they're only praying if they enter the church or they enter the temple or they go to the cathedral. And I understand that. And that is a beautiful thing. There's something special about doing that. Some people only feel like they're praying if they get down on their knees. And so posture becomes important to prayer. But we're reminded throughout Scripture, Paul himself says, pray without ceasing. Nehemiah shot off an arrow prayer. There are ways in which I just... Let me just put it this way. You may not think of it as prayer, but I just think we should be thinking about God all the time. I think that's a part of prayer. 
It's a part of my prayer life to be thinking about God. When I'm doing things that other, where other people wouldn't be thinking about God, and you can't tell what's going on inside, but I'm mindful of the Lord, or I'm thinking about Him, or I'm looking at this situation through His eyes, or I'm praying for these people that are around me. There are all kinds of ways to take God with you consciously and in a heartfelt way. And I think it's just that unmo- almost unbroken exchange of communication that should come to be a part of our relationship with God. And I want to emphasize, you see, that God will start, you'll start hearing God speak to you. This, wouldn't you like a vision? I would like a vision. Come on, level with me. If you have a vision, you're going to, I mean, you've thought this way. If I could see a miracle... Or if I could have been there with Jesus. Or if I could have a bona fide vision. It would just really strengthen my faith. It would make me stand that much taller for Jesus Christ. We're all that way, I think. But you see, they were in prayer. It was a time of prayer. I think, you know, Peter goes up on the roof. It's noontime. He's hungry. It's warm up there. While the food's being made, he slips into, I've done that. Don't you ever kind of nod off in the sun? Get kind of a, a half awake, half asleep thing? And God uses it to speak to him about things that were already on his mind. Food. Yeah. And God teaches him. And Peter's perplexed. He doesn't have it all figured out. How about the vision? Would you like this vision, the vision that Cornelius had? Cornelius, I know all about you. I know you care about me. I know you care about others. I want you to know that. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to send to t- for a guy named Peter. Not to be confused with Peter the Tanner. Got to get the details in there. But Peter, now, if you had a vision like that, what would you do with it? Cornelius sends two of his servants and one of his soldiers to get Peter. He commits resources he even, he even tells the others what's going on. He takes this stuff seriously. And it leads to obedience. And I thought, if, how do you know God wouldn't give you a vision like that? But you see, it starts with exercising some faith that takes God serious. That you believe God's going to actually lead and influence your life. That He's a part of who you are. That He cares about what's going on in your life. You and I ought to know that. But we live, in, we live and swim in a world of habits and routines that are controlled by secularism in which there is no God. And I think sometimes God prompts us, just like he prompted Cornelius, but then Cornelius says, that's crazy. And he doesn't commit any resources, he doesn't commit any time, he doesn't commit any servants, he doesn't commit a soldier, he doesn't commit anything to what the Lord is prompting him to do. And I'll bet, if you're like me, you've done that. You've just said, that's crazy. (laughs) What a silly thought. 
take God seriously. Faith involves risk. Faith involves risk. Faith involves believing it when God says, I want to use you. Do you know how you become a pastor? You take risks with God. You see, you're not betting on yourself. You're betting on Him. That's why risk is involved. Most of us don't want to play that risk game. We only bet on ourselves. So we go back to bed. Or we forget about what God has prompted us to do. Or we just say, I could never do that. I'll leave it to all those other believers out there. They're better equipped. And you do that enough times, and pretty soon you're not going to hear God leading or directing or influencing you at all. Somewhere along the line, we've got to start doing what Peter and Cornelius did in our lives. And I know you are. God bless you. Keep it up. This is great stuff. This is how the world gets turned upside down. This is how Jesus becomes real to people because faith is about taking as real that which belongs to God because it belongs now to us. Where am I? I'm really moving along here. Don't worry. Coincidence. Oh, so much here. We talked quite a bit about that last week, but how powerful that these events, we count it as just coincidence, but God is bringing things together in your lives, and as you make Him a habit, as you pray and include God in your thoughts, as you obey and respond to Him, letting Him really be God in your life, you are going to see things starting to come together and you say, wow, this is the conjunction of a remarkable event, which is what experienced, what Peter experienced. He's still pondering, verse 17, and then in verse 19 of chapter 10, he's still pondering, what's this all mean, Lord? What's this all about, this vision? I like the fact that he's even asking the Lord. He's trying to figure it out. A lot of us would just dismiss it and go, what a crazy dream. Oh, I, I can't even tell you it's so crazy, you wouldn't believe it. That's the way we do it with these things. But what if God really isn't it? I like the fact that Peter's trying to figure it out. He thinks maybe God is trying to prompt him to do something. And at that very moment, these three guys are out at the gate yelling, hey, is this where Peter lives? And then he feels this prompting. He says, it was the Holy Spirit prompting me. How, how do you know that? I mean, how did he? Did he hear actual words? Was it audible? Was it just something formulated in his heart? But he felt that God was prompting him, and it was right in concert with that vision. Don't discriminate. Don't make judgments that are going to cause you to turn around and have nothing to do with these guys. Go with them. I've sent them. And he goes with them, and he hears for the first time about Cornelius. He gets to Cornelius' house. Again, obedience and obedience, taking God seriously. He gets to Cornelius' house, and Cornelius has his whole family there. The guy has ordered in food. He's invited all his friends. He has a sound system. The courtyard's got chairs set up. Peter walks in. I mean, this guy takes God seriously. He, and he falls down before Peter because he, who is a centurion, recognizes that Peter is God's man. It was God who told him to send for Peter. Peter comes back. He falls before him just like he would before God. He falls for God for that way because he takes God as God seriously and does what God prompts him to do. And now Peter is here and he's down on his face. I mean, Cornelius is just, what next, Lord? What are you going to do? And Peter says, get up. 
I'm just like you. And that's a beautiful thing because when we put God first and depend on Him, it's never about ego. It's never about self. Cornelius gets down and doesn't think it's beneath him because he depends on God. Peter thinks Cornelius should get up, that he isn't something special because he depends on God. And when you put God first and depend on Him for what you need in life, you'll be assertive when you need to be assertive, and you'll be a servant when you need to be a servant. Otherwise, I wouldn't be up here able to talk to you. In my first speech class, I was so shy, I almost got sick to my stomach. God will change you as you walk and move with Him. That's being open and receptive. And you know, what's, I, I, there's so many things here, but I just thought it was a kicker that, you know, Peter knows he's going to violate the purity regulations, so what does he do? He takes six guys who can nail him to the floor for what he's about to do. If I was going to violate God's law, or thought I was, and was not convinced that God was in it, I certainly wouldn't take guys who could pin me to the wall for violating his rules and regulations. But Peter was obviously beginning to be convinced that God was in this. And so he took six guys, as we see in uh, chapter 11, 11, that uh, were of the circumcision, they were brothers, and he took them with him. And it just tells me this guy is open and receptive to being stretched and st sticking out for God. Be open to the adventure of believing God. Humility, I talked about validating the re reality of God. Be humble, depend on God. And then the words of Jesus in Scripture have influence. I mean, every part of Peter's sermon, I think he can just hear that sermon. Things that he had preached before, it's, it's almost like a synthesis of the other sermons in Acts that he has delivered. But now, all of a sudden, it's just popping all over. Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is judge of the living and the dead. God is an impartial judge. It's all verifying through Scripture what God is leading him to do. And when you put it all together, there is a common experience that all enjoy in understanding God's will. I get excited about this stuff because it really relates to my own walk with God. I want miracles. I want special visions. I think we all do. We think that we would be stronger because I think we all want to live for the Lord. We want to stand up for Jesus. We want to be stand-up people that stand strong for him. But we think, you know, some of the supernatural stuff would, uh, would help. And I'm not trying to belittle or diminish or shy away from any of the supernatural that happened here. But I think sometimes we are so secularized that we don't see the supernatural in and around us each and every day. And I hope that some of these things which are printed in the notes for you, if you'll reflect upon them, I think you'll see a lot of your own experience starting to validate that God is still in this same business doing some wonderful things. And it will energize you and excite you and it will bring Jesus alive to you. And we, as his people, will bring Jesus alive to the community at large as we really start living more and more for him. Will you stand with me? Let me close in prayer for us. The number one thing I wanted to emphasize and leave you with is that Jesus is the criterion of God. You want to be a child of God? You want to be one of his people? You want to be a Jesus people? It's all about Jesus. You start with him. He'll lead and guide you. He'll turn you in to the man or woman he wants you to become. 
And He will manifest Himself in your life, in your character, in your personality, in your emotions, in your spirit. And if you'd like to know more about that, after I pray and we hear music to help us travel, I'm going to be down here with other pastoral staff. And if you'd like to come and pray about that or ask us questions or pray on behalf of someone else, we invite you to come and come in Jesus' name. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. And thank you for your Holy Spirit, which works and operates in our lives. Thank you for one another. Thank you for such a beautiful habit, Lord. The routine of knowing you, being your child, and seeing you work in our lives. We praise and thank you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless you.